Riz, so great to be able to chat with you. Thank you so much for being on the Stronger Podcast. It's a pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, look, this podcast is about resilience, stronger mental health, living a meaningful life. And I'm so excited to be able to talk to you because I feel like in so many ways, you embody this and you live this and you've come from a really interesting background. So we're going to get into that today. But, uh, mate, it's so exciting to be able to chat with you. So a little bit about yourself. Uh, in, in one sentence, can you describe yourself? Yeah. Um, thug turn healer. Wow. <laughs> thug turn healer. Okay. So that evokes so much uh, curiosity. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. Look, so... Um, if we were to Google your name, yep. uh, which I haven't done yet, actually, but uh, <laughs> if we were to Google your name, I'm sure there's going to be a whole bunch of things that come up, right? Yeah. And um, what kind of things going to come up? Um, the, the first thing that will come up is my uh, status in my past life, yep. in my past living um, situation. Yep. I was a gang member, former high-ranking gang member of a certain Middle Eastern crime gang. Okay. Um, it started out in the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was it was a rite of passage, I yep. suppose. My father being a, a nightclub man, and uh, him and my uncle Vincent had a nightclub in Northbridge during the early eighties, and oh, I thought that I was entitled to that way of life after watching Scarface and stuff like that. But your uncle's man. called Uncle Vince. Like, yeah, I mean that itself sounds like a movie. Right. So <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's just it's stereotypically fitting. Yeah. Okay. But um, yeah, I uh, if you look me up on, on Google, it's. It's pretty ruthless what they've written about me in Wikipedia. Yeah. They have me on a site called Revolvi and another sort, another site called Gangsters of Oz, um, okay. with my links to Western Sydney gangs, um, Curry Birthing Rackets. Uh, they've got me linked in with fixing a Danny Green and, and Paul Briggs fight. Yeah, wow. So th- there's a there's a couple of little things on there that you you read about me. Yeah. Nonetheless, it's not who I am. It doesn't define the path I'm living now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So over um, how many years have you? Been in and out of prison, and what, what, what's, okay. what's that been like? So, it, um, it was rough growing up. Mother and father were separated. Okay. So, um, for me, it was a go go to wherever I felt comfortable at the time. Basically, I lived with my father. Yeah. But my mother was more of a comfort zone after sort of getting hooked up with drugs. Um, I started smoking weed at a young age, and I was about eleven years old, nine years old. I had my first. Um, introduction to marijuana and nine years on. old. Nine years old. Wow. Yeah. So um, <laughs> from there, it led on to my first introduction to uh, heroin, which was at thirteen years old. So it was heroin and amphetamines at the time. So back in the early nineties, ninety two, ninety three, there was there was a big influx of, of heroin and amphetamines, and um, I got my hands on some through a close uh, family member, friend. Yeah. Decided to go back to my mother's house and try it, and after doing so, it, it sort of it stuck with me. It was really? I, it was game over from the first from the first time I injected it. I was intravenous. Yeah. So from the first time I did, uh, injected it, I was stuck. I was hooked. So wow. for me, growing up, <clears throat> I, ser- I, I, I served a different purpose in life. I didn't I didn't serve a, a higher powers purpose. I served my own purpose. I served the purpose of gains. Yeah. And um. I started going to jail. My first jail sentence was in 1997. I was 17 and 10 months old, and I entered into the prison system as a man, as an adult. Okay. They, yeah. didn't, they didn't give me opportunity to go to juvenile. 
um, I saw juvenile briefly. Yeah. But my extensive history started in 1997. Um, I went to Hakea, then Casarina. It was a big stint. It was a um, very big stint. All up from 97 to three years ago, I served 15 years jail. So I've been in and out for the last 23 years. I've seen seven to eight years freedom out of the last 23 years. Wow. Yeah. And it, it, it's incredible how it sounds so easy to say 15 years. Mm. You can say that in a couple of seconds. Yep. But to live it yeah. is a completely different it's thing. Daunting it's daunting looking back at it. Yeah, yeah I'm sure it's it is. nothing to, um, I'm not glorifying it. No, no. Bit, but for me, there was times that I would get to a point where I'd made a lot of money. Mm. Uh, I'd also done a lot of crime, a lot of bad things. Yeah. And I'd hit a stone wall. Yeah. So it was like I'd do something abrupt and, and get myself caught just to go and have that time away. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, w- it would take me away from <clears throat> the whole fast pace, you know, you've got to keep up the street career, you've got to keep up your, your status type of thing. That, that was my... Believe it or not, it was my holiday. At the time, yeah. it was my holiday away from what was going on out here in the street. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, um, it sounds like there was quite a bit of trauma there that happened at childhood. If you're using drugs starting at nine and then 13 to really heavy drugs, um, what was your what was going on in terms of even family dynamics, I guess? I saw, I saw a lot of bad things growing up. Being my father, like I said, was in the nightclub industry. Uh, I was around him and his partners and friends and whatnot. Yeah. In the Northbridge scene in the um, late 80s, early 90s. And that was my first taste of what was going on. I mean, I've yeah. seen a few bad fights go on and uh, it carried on from there. At my mother's side of the family, my mother, my mother was distant from all her family. Yeah. She only kept to herself, but she was an avid drug user herself. And I didn't, I didn't know this until the age of 13 when, um, like I said, when I went home and I, I first tasted uh, drugs. I, I'd left a, a bottle of water, mm. and, uh, an injection bottle, in my mother's toilet. Uh, not knowing, after having my first injection, I walked out and she came out after using the toilet and she asked me what this was and I said to her, I had something in my eye. I said it was just a square of eye. Yeah. She goes, I know what it is because I used to use drugs. <clears throat> wow. So my mother and father separated at four. Yeah. Um, I never really had a, a safe zone when it came to, you know, a lot of rough instances. Let's just say, for instance, um, if, if I'd gotten into a fight in school and, you know, I, I'd probably, because I got stabbed at a young age, um, I came home and my, my father was like, you'll be all right. You're there. It's okay. Hurry. Really? In, in Arabic, it's like, my Never mind. Wow. So that was... You know, pretty how you going? Yeah. And my mum's side, um, my mum was a bit, a bit crazier. You know? I mean, she she'd be like, "Oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll sort this out." Blah blah blah. It got to the point where my mother actually, um, she, she my mother used to take me to do robberies. Really? My mother used to use drugs with me intravenously. Um, yeah. After finding out that I used drugs, mum jumped on board and she said, "Where's mine?" Basically. Really? Yeah. And dad was dad was nothing like that. Dad was God for a man. Yeah. But I, I, I sort of mixed up the depiction of both. I, I looked at dad as being a nightclub man. Yes. And being a gangster and mum as um just being a good girl. But mum was actually um not a good girl. Yeah. <laughs> mum and dad sort of teed up. Mum was dancing in dad's club back in the day, so Really? Yeah, it was a 
pretty different upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a childhood, as you're describing it, I'm thinking to myself, that's not that's not the average childhood for a person, for anyone out there. Yeah, that's not. It's not. That's no, not at all. No, and that, that doesn't really set you up for a lot of wins later on because I, I guess a lot of the way that you'd think and looking for a sense of safety or security would be deep down in your heart. You'd really want that. Yeah. You wouldn't really know that you want it. No, but, but it was it was like a it was a subconscious calling. Yeah, you know, yeah. Feeling I wasn't feeling out of place, but I did feel like I didn't have that safe place to go to. Yeah, right. So yeah, that's where it led on from there. So then in your teens, you're using drugs, and then when did that sort of evolve into um, gangs the or the lifestyle? Yeah. Yeah. So thirteen, I started using drugs. <clears throat> it got to the age where I was about fourteen and a half, nearly fifteen. I was, it was about three or four months off my fifteenth birthday, and I got a gift from one of my father's friends. Um, he'd given me a couple of ounces of marijuana, mm. and this is at his pizzeria. My father walked into the kitchen at the time I was getting it, and yeah. my father blew me away. He's like, "What are you doing?" And my uncle Angelo at the time, he goes, "Don't worry, George. He's, he's seen it all." Yeah, I was keeping everything from my dad wow. at the time, and it was, it was like, okay, everything's you know, the cat's out the bag. It's yeah, like, time to just fess up and tell dad everything. <clears throat> so I told my dad that I'd smoked, I was smoking marijuana. And my father, being from the Middle East, you know, he understood the whole hashish thing. It was, you know, back home they smoked that stuff, yes. and I just said, it's, it's like hashish, dad. It's like hashish, it's alright. So my uncle gave me these three ounces of marijuana uh, just before my fifteenth birthday. And lifted up his apron, and he had a pistol sitting behind his apron while he was making pizzas in the pizzeria in Northbridge. Wow. So he shows me this pistol. Yeah, I kid you not. Shows me. And my father goes, "Come on, Angela, what, what are you doing?" And my dad's like, "Relax, man. He knows not to say anything." So, yeah, that's the first sort of taste of I've got a bit of pull. Yeah. If yeah, knows anything. Yeah. So yeah. from there, I um I bumped into a handful of uh, excuse my language, but um. Related cousins, yeah. And at the time, we were having a bit of confrontation with a lot of Asian crews that were rising, mm. and my my cousins and, and brothers, and we all come together, and basically we started to band together. Now we had um we had a handful of brothers go overseas, back to Lebanon and back to their motherland, and they came back with a handful of these necklaces with swords, mm. and that's when the boys were handed a handful of these swords. Wow. So at the age of uh, 15 is when we really kicked off. Um, that was a quick spiral. As soon as you know, that, as soon as we had these, these this patch, so to speak. Yeah. We um we knew we had to make a stand. We knew we had to do something to you make sure that we're not going to be messed with. Mm. Uh, just as the Asian crews were doing at the time, so we did that. Um, and through the the first two years of banding together we um we recruited 300 or so street members here wow so we, we grew rapidly yeah 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 that just, just goes on from there we've got brothers in sydney and melbourne um i've got brothers in, in a crew called notorious yeah that i haven't spoke to for years but they were linked up to us if we needed to move something from this state um, we could move it quick to yeah. them just a quick drive over you know, five days drive there and do what we had to do to come back. So we had these links. And it was good having my father with his connections because his connections had 
even bigger connections in Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah. So it's sort of filtered through. I could go to Michael Angelo or, or my, uncle, my Uncle Dom or my Uncle Vince and, and just ask a question and they pulled me in the right direction. Yeah, sure. So I had access. I had, sort of had the keys to the city and the keys to the country yeah, at yeah. the time. So and I'm guessing that good. power sort of made you feel quite invincible, I suppose. It, at yeah. the time, yeah, yeah, for sure. I was, I was, in my mind, I yeah. was invincible. Yet, I've been stabbed five times and got shot with a bloody hair rifle. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been through a little bit, not yeah. too much. Yeah. I've got brothers that have been through a lot more. But, um, so you're then going yeah. through this period where you're in and out of prison. Yep. And um, as you're going through prison, what are a couple of things that you've noticed about prison life what are, what's, what are some big things to people who are looking from the outside never been in prison yep. never experienced that what should they know about prison it's a dog eat dog world mm. you don't just walk into a prison yard and keep your head down yeah um, if you think you're going into a retreat to just pass the time yeah you, you're wrong in the state man. this is a place when you walk into it you're no longer your name you're a number yeah um, and you lose your whole identity. Yeah. You become part of this new hierarchy. Yes. So you come in from the street as a top dog and you're now the little fish. But if you're a little fish in jail, you get walked on, you get stood all over. And yeah. it's, a, it's a quick way to either die, get put in a hospital, um, or get taken yeah, to, to a place you know as protection. Yeah. And for, for me personally, not really a place you want to go. I'm not going to neither. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm going to carry what I had out here and there, and I did that. Yeah. So <laughs> what I did was the first couple of months I was in there, um, I had a few confrontations. Mm. And I had a couple of brothers that knew me from the inside, from out here. So I made a stand. Um, got into a bit of a, a, bit of a flight. I got stabbed in the back twice. And the person that stabbed me, I stabbed them back. Yeah. I stabbed him in the face, uh, I think it was about five or six times. Yeah. It got to the point where he, his left eye, I actually, the, the blade that I had, it skipped up his cheek and hit him in the left eye. Yeah. So I got an extra two years added on uh, to the sentence I was doing for Grievous Body Arm. Really? Yeah. It was going to be an attempted murder charge, but because there was cameras yeah. and it showed that he attacked me first, it was self-defense. So. Yeah, wow. Mate, so um, moving on then, you've gone through this journey of in and out of prison and at what point did you start to kind of feel like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not sure about this cycle that the I'm realisation? Yeah, yeah, when did that moment sort <laughs> of hit, hit you? Dude, I can't, I can't say that um, it, it didn't happen over weeks, you know, it wasn't a gradual thing. Yeah. It was instantaneous. Really? Yeah, and it was in my last sentence. So yeah, I just finished my last sentence uh, coming up two years ago now. Yeah, wow. Well. And what happened was I had, had it was it was a confrontation of a different sort. Mm. I didn't expect this from no man. Yeah. But um, my cellmate at the time. Yeah. Uh, came up to me and started cross-referencing the Bible and, and stuff like that. At the time, I was a Muslim. I, yeah. I converted to Islam, and he started cross-referencing the right the Bible to me. I was like, dude, I don't want to hear this. Um, I know all about the Bible. I know that's wild. Uh, it got to the point where he prayed. He asked to pray over me, and I said, "You know what? Couldn't hurt." I said, "Go ahead, pray." Over me. 
me prayer. Do the accent. <laughs> you got to do the accent. All right, I think you got to do the accent. He's a Malaysian American guy. Um, yeah, a Malaysian yeah, American. Yeah, Alfred Arabelli. He's a top man. I love him. He actually said to me, "He goes, Riz, brother, let, let me pray with you, brother." <laughs> I was like, "Come on, man." He's like, "Please, bro, let me pray with you." I was like, "Go ahead, pray." And he wants to pray over a, a Muslim Sally. Yeah. yeah, so he's from Singapore. So yeah. he's from a like, predominantly strong Muslim background, yeah. but he's a Christian himself. Yeah. So <clears throat> I said, yeah, go ahead, bro. Mid um, <laughs> prayer, I just broke out and cried. I don't know really? what, what it was, man. I don't know, I still can't explain it. Um, but I do, I, I do sort of get the understanding now how the Holy Spirit works. So yeah. For me, it was, it was the Holy Spirit just flushing me, cleaning my body. I mean, of all this negativity, of all this wrongdoing. And yeah, it was crazy. The feeling was, was a feeling of peace. For the first time in my life, I, I felt peace. I For felt, the first time in your life? Yeah, I felt peace. Yeah. I didn't feel like I had to go out of my cell and, and carry my chest out and mm. have this facade about me. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it dropped off. Um, so I, I did the sinner's prayer with you and <laughs> I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour. Wow. Yeah. And you literally have this, like, illumination moment. Big time. And what, the scales just sort of fell off? I was blind. Yeah. Dude, I prayed. Excuse me, I prayed to stop smoking. Really? And three days after, there was no cravings at all. I gave my pouch of white ox that I had at the time. I gave it to one of the brothers next door and had that. Yeah. He's like, bro, do I anything? I said, please, just, just take it. I'm done with it. Yeah, wow. Again, I started praying for more things. I was like, this may be just coincidence. Yeah. I prayed for more things. I prayed to, um, I prayed to get into rehab. Got into rehab. I was the first person in 7,000... Sorry, out of 7,000 prisoners in the state. Yeah. I was the first person in seven years to get accepted to Serenity House on parole. Like, they don't, they don't accept prisoners on parole. I was the first person in seven years out of 7,000 male prisoners in the state. So it's sort of... You know, coincidence went out the window. Yeah, yeah. That prayers were getting answered. I prayed to see my auntie. Mm. Now, even though I told all of my family I don't want to see nannies when I go to jail, um, I actually prayed to see my auntie and she rocked up. She was in tears. It was like, wow. Something was done. That was it, game away for me. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, That's I, absolutely I, I promised. I promised, um, I promised the Lord that wherever I go, I'll, I'll let everyone know what my life was like and how it turned around. It's all, all glory in. That's incredible, yeah. mate. That's absolutely incredible. So tell me this. Um, because you were part of a, a, a well-known and substantial gang mm-hmm. um, in Australia, for people who don't know anything about that life, other than occasionally seeing people yep. um, that perhaps look real menacing or scary or ride past in a big pack of motorcycles, yeah. um, why do these gangs exist? Why, why, do, why are there these gangs? What draws people to that? I think it's a, it's, it's a sense of loss. Mm. So they're, they're, brothers are lost. Yeah. You know I mean, that they're a sense of being lost in society, in family. There's, um, there's no, I know from, for myself, there was no real direction in life. Yeah, okay. I didn't have no real role models, other than my father, but my father was a very closed off man. Mm. Um, sense of bravado, you find brotherhood, family. Every one of the brothers that I knew and that were part of, the gang I was in, they were missing something in their life mm. and it had to do with family. Yeah. So I think it's it's being a part of a gang, you find a sense of worth. Identity. Know, identity. 
You have identity. Definitely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You you find who you who you are but not who you're meant to be. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Okay, so I found who I was and it was someone that was trying to fit in, someone that was trying to feel that I didn't need to worry or I I need protection for myself. Yeah. Um who I'm meant to be is is a man that looks out for others in the right sense, mm. brings them to the light. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Keep them away from the negative, put them on the right path. Yeah. I've seen all that, I've, I've done it, I've lived it, I'm alive still, thank God I'm still healthy. Yeah. But who I was was someone that was just trying to trying to fit into a family that I didn't really have. Having mother and father broken up and there was a go between weekends at mum's and then the rest of the week with dad. It was basically school, eat, sleep with dad and mum's was like run a mark on drugs. I never really had that family unit where we could sit down and eat together or, or drink together and laugh yeah. together. So getting into gang life, it was like that. We'd go with 10 or 15 brothers to a restaurant. I was 16 at the time. Yeah, right. We'd go to a restaurant, you know, with the older brothers. They'd buy a couple of glasses of this and that. I'd be there drinking. There was no problem. You feel part of a family unit. Yeah, wow. Well. Yeah. And I guess it gives you a big network as well. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which, Crazy when, when my wife and I had dinner with you and your wife, mm. uh, we walk into a random bar that you've never been into. Yeah, I've never been here. This is the first time. I've and uh, yeah. you basically know people in every corner of that entire bar. I'm sorry people about be- that. Line behind the bar and also people who are just sitting there having dinner. And... Yeah, <laughs> sort of made it an awkward dinner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> With you having to yeah, race off and right. say hello to so many people. I had cousins in one corner. I had one of my close mates behind the bar, managing the bar. Yeah. And then I had a mate's uh, son's christening in, in the sports bar next door. Pretty crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. Of all nights, it had to happen, not having dinner. No, that's brilliant. I'm really sorry about that. No, that's good. But uh, it's sort of like that. Like, wherever I go, if, I'm, if my missus just wants to go. Yeah out for, for a track to Costco or something. Yeah. More than likely bumping or someone. Even if even if we go into like especially when we go to Northbridge or if I take my wife out to dinner, yeah. we usually bump into a handful of people that I know. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Even shopping. That's funny. Yeah. I'm gonna ask you a couple of random questions. Yep. So um, you've been in and out of the um, I guess the legal system prison in out. Is what is the police system and the policing in Australia, is it working? Is it a, no? Why? A lot of, a lot of police are actually abusing their power. Mm. They're not policing correctly. It's, um, I think it's a free-for-all when it comes to the cops, to hear the truth. Mm. Um, I used to have a, a hatred towards them. Yeah. I realised they're just doing their job. Now I realise they're doing their job. Yeah. But at the time, Let's just say, for instance, there was a, a raid or something, and there would always be three or four cowboy cops there that would be heavy-handed, or you know, I mean, they were the ones that lay the charge on you for three or four ounces of drugs. Mm. Yet when you go to court, you're getting charged for two ounces, and then that, where do the other two ounces go? Yeah. Now, I mean, so at the time there was a lot of police actually getting uh, urinalysis and stuff like that because they were accused of being on. Really? Yeah, so their abuse of power was to, for their own personal gains. And we knew it. Yeah. yeah. We even got pulled over a couple of times. And they grabbed drugs out of a bum bag and the cash and sent me on my way. <laughs> it's like, are you for real, mate? Yeah, wow. And then they'd be like, you know, you better rack off now. Yeah. They say a word. 
or we'll come down on you hard. We've got things that you don't know about, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't going to complain, I'm out of there. You yeah, know I mean? sure, yeah. That's well. what it's like. Yeah, the police aren't doing their job. Yeah, okay. There's, there's, a, there's a bunch of rookies in every generation of yeah. the police force that are coming up that will see the easy way out. Yeah, right. It's and is prison uh, enough of a deterrent for people to stop? No, no, not, not one bit. Uh, for me, I, I walk into a prison and it's, like I said, it's time out for me. It's just time out. And that's a scary thing. You're supposed to go in there and reform. Yeah. It's supposed to be somewhat of a reform centre, but it's not. You actually go in there. I call it a concentrated crime camp. Because you go in there with knowledge of the street, you come out with this heightened knowledge, this, this new learning. Yeah. Of, of, ways and means to create more money and more drug avenues. Wow. It's crazy. And I oh, guess you, more of a network as well. Yeah. You, you band together with people that you never thought you banded together with in order to make amends with, with other, you know, I suppose, rivalries and whatnot. When you're in jail, when you come out, you've got two rival crews that have patched things up inside. So yeah, if you right. make a bit of money together outside. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit crazy like that. Is... Um, so when, when we're talking about drug addiction, obviously you got hooked at a really young age. Yeah. Um, was it something that you ever tried to get away from yourself? Um, once. Yeah. Yeah, once I tried to get away from it. Uh, about six years ago, I went to I went to Shalom House and <clears throat> I um I asked a friend of mine there who's he actually is the main man at Peter Linda James. I asked him if it was okay if you take me on board. And at the time, another brother of mine was already in there. And Pete just said to me, I'm not having two roosters in here. Yeah. I can't have two roosters in the same pen. So um, he turned me down and walked away. And that's when I did my last sentence. So really? I did attempt it. Yeah. I um, also attempted Sorinian House that same week. Yeah. And Pete knocked me back. I went to Sorinian House. But I had some implants put in, some naltrexone implants. Mm. And I went there for three weeks. And then they started playing up and they were rejecting out of my body so I had to go to the emergency room at Royal Perth but they refused to remove the implants Yeah. Um, because the doctor that put them in was a specialised doctor for that mm. so they said you better go see him so I went to see him he refused to take them out because there's $6,000 an implant Wow. so I was in a bit of a way so that's the only time that I did try I actually put my best foot forward then and that happened the, the inflammation and then the rejection of the implants yeah. and then the knockback from Pete don't get me wrong, Pete, I love him to death. Yeah. He, um, he married me and my wife recently. Yeah. Wow. So he's a very good friend of mine. And yeah. what he does is amazing, man. He's, he's an amazing man. But I, I, did, I did try to get abstinent, but it just never worked. What are your thoughts around, um, for anyone who's listening, who perhaps is not, they wouldn't consider themselves um, addicted, but you know they think it would be cool to try this or try that, or they occasionally have a bit of this or a bit of that. Um, I mean, you've been there, done that. So when you look at people who are sort of like playing with it, mm. um, what's your advice? What are your thoughts? Get out of the water before it gets too deep. Yeah. You wow. Don't, you don't want to... Before you know it, it just takes over. You, you might be having a social snort or smoke or whatever it is you're doing socially. Yeah. And you will find that there will be some form of speed hump that you'll come across mm. and you'll realise that, you know, what you've been doing as a social thing can actually be used as a mask. Yeah. So right. whatever you're facing, whether it's trauma, some sort of anxiety or disability in yourself, you, you go to that. Yeah. And that'll be your, your, your crutch. 
So whatever you're doing socially, be mindful of the fact that you don't you don't need that to have a good time. Isn't it amazing how we always think we're a bit smarter? Yeah. Like, oh, for sure. <laughs> when I remember when I was inside, the amount of conversations that you'd have with people who think they're smarter than, you know, the drug squad and TRG. I'm smarter, yeah. I'm smarter, I'm smarter. But like, you're in here. Yeah, you're exactly. clearly not smarter. You're part of the system. You're part of the, you know, the whole structure of not being smart. Yeah. You are underneath the prison, not above the prison. If you're in jail, you're obviously not smarter. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you go in there and they're all like, no, nah, they, they caught me because I... I stuffed up here, stuffed up there. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, mate. If you realise that at the time, you would have been smarter. Yeah. yeah. And I think, so, so when it comes to substance use, we all think we're smarter. Oh, I could just, like, dabble in a little bit yeah. or socially here or there. Now I got under control, I got under control. But at some point, these things inevitably do take over. Yep. Yeah. It, it grows from having, let's just say in, in, in weight terms, if you were to go out on a weekend basis and have three or four points... You know, every week, mm. guarantee you there'll be some sort of wild party or, or an event that happens. Yeah, that you up that instead of having three or four points that you know you go we'll have six or seven points because none of this rain. Yeah, and then that high takes you to a new sort of uh, yeah sort of feeling in your body, new euphoria. Yeah. So then you, you're craving for that. The next time you have your two or three points, you'd be like, oh, don't really feel it. Don't really feel it. Let's go that seven points again. Yeah, and then you're on that new that new level man mm. your tolerance just jumps with that one event your tolerance just jumps so you, that's how it grows and then it goes from two days a week or the weekends it actually grows to becoming you know through the week gradually it becomes oh we'll take a bit Monday to keep us going at work to start us off you know we had a rough weekend coming down Sunday night let's have a bit Monday yeah well then Monday comes you have two or three points and then you come down by Wednesday and then you're like oh just have a bit more to get me through to Friday and then it grows like that wow mm. now with your own personal journey how have you who have you become compared to who you were before uh, were, were you ever an angry person were you yeah you were yeah, yeah I was very I was a very angry person angry violent I had no respect for anyone mm. you know what I mean I Respect for the brothers, that's it. Oh, I only respect for those that were surrounding me at the time. Mm. Who I am now, I'm, I'm Riz. Yeah. I'm, I'm a man of God now, man. I yeah. will do everything I can to give glory to Jesus and everything. Yeah. It's, it's a big difference. Like for me, if I, let's just say I have a win at work, mm. I thank God for it, man. If I wake up in the morning, I thank God for it. Yeah. I never used to be like that. How did you let it go? How did you... I prayed on it, man. It, it was taken from me. There's no explanation. You can't fathom God. You can't fathom yeah. how perfect He is, but it was all taken from me. All of that pain. Everything. All of the unforgiveness, Everything. all of the bitterness, all of it was just taken yep. from you. I did not I did not have to cry anymore. It was, I, was filled with, I was filled with love after giving my life to, to Christ, man. It was crazy how it happened. Wow. Yep. Very crazy, and I still spin out of it. Like I said, it's been three years <clears throat> since I've given my life to Christ, and I still can't, can't believe it. That's incredible. And how many years have you been able to be clean, I suppose, as well? So I've been clean for three years and six months. Yeah. Has it been easy? The first year, no. The first really? year was hard, because that's when 
I'd, um, I just started in prison yeah. to become clean. Mm. And then I got out into the rehab. And I was already clean when I got to rehab. But um, oh, there were some trying times. Was there? Yeah. There was, a, there was a lot of broken souls in rehab. Yeah. And a lot of people trying to find themselves. Yeah. And that's, that's where I was going. I, I went to rehab to try to find myself. I was already clean from the drugs, but just to try and find who I am. Yeah. And the reasons behind me using drugs. Um, and I was bumping heads a lot with a lot of people in there. Yeah. It was like, oh. The go-to way, the automatic thought was to go and get drugs mm. to cope with it. So mm. The control thinking was to nut it out and I actually grew resilience from that. So I'm very happy. I'm yeah, very that's happy. incredible. Um, now, a different part that we haven't spoken about is uh, your Middle Eastern background. Yep. So when people look at Middle Eastern people, there's a lot of stigmas, there's a lot of stereotypes. Um, and I think... Uh, just because of the way it's portrayed in media, there's a lot of fear as well. Yeah. So people are a bit afraid of Middle Eastern people for a whole range of different reasons. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Middle Eastern people? Because from my personal experience growing up, we've had Middle Eastern people who are very close to our family. And I remember when I first went to the United States as well, I stayed with a Palestinian family and they are some of the warmest, most beautiful people. Yeah. Um, it was family, like, and I, my my parents were close to them. They introduced them to me, and I suddenly felt like, oh, this is family. And so there are a lot of beautiful things about Middle Eastern people. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So coming through these last couple of years, um, I've reconnected with my family. Yeah. And what I lost through losing my father, that connection, that sense of family, which even though it was small, it was still powerful. My father was my best friend. Yeah. Coming back into it now and, and very grateful for God blessing me with, with the family I've got. Like you said, it is family. Like I, yeah. I've never been able to take a girlfriend of mine to my auntie's house because she'd tell me, and my girlfriend is outside. I got married and I go to my auntie's house and I walk up to the door thinking it's going to be the same as the past. Yeah. Um, and my auntie smacks my arm and she goes, is this your wife in the car? Bring that in the house. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is new. This is all new. So wow. I'm blessed to say that my family are, are exactly like a family. Yeah. Loving people, warming, welcoming people. Yeah. Um, they look at me at, at 100 kilos plus and they think I'm thin. You've got to eat more. Them type of people. <laughs> you, know, you must eat more. You must eat more food. So it's, yeah, we... Um, the stigma behind the whole Middle East, the thing is, what's portrayed in media? You know, there's, there's a lot of a lot of flack given to Arabs in general. Man. Yeah. You know, I mean, not just you know, your Lebanese or your Iraqi, just Arabs in general. Yes. Um, there's a saying that goes around the street. You know, not not every uh, <laughs> not every Muslim is a terrorist, but every terrorist is a Muslim, and that that sucks because not every Arab is a Muslim. Yeah, true. But we're all yeah. painted that picture. Yes, so, yes. Yeah, it's um. It's misconstrued view on us, man. Mm. Arabs or Middle Eastern people in general, loving people. Yeah. You know, really loving people. Um, if there's anyone that's ever in need, we'd be the, we'd be the type of people to jump out. Like, even uh, there was a couple of weeks back we saw, or maybe a couple of months now, we saw some people on the side of the road, uh, a man and a woman laying on the side of the road. My wife and I uh, had a brother of mine in the back. He's a crazy guy, but he's been hanging around for some time now. Mm. And my wife just looks at me and she looks at uh, my friend and, she gives them some money, she gets just hand it to them. And that's, you know, that's coming from my wife, but that's exactly what we are like as well. Yeah, We're sure. the same type of, of way. If we see someone down and out, we will help them. 
Yeah. The Arabs have painted this picture of violence and war-torn and, and poverty-stricken. But really, we're rich with culture, man. We're mm. rich with, with, with family. Yes. Very family-oriented people. Yeah. Uh, rich with dance, rich with music. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it is beautiful. And plus, we're rich with um, with language. Yeah. One of the first ever spoken languages. Man. Yeah, that's true. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of English words even originate that's from... Right. The yeah. alphabet comes from Middle East. You know what I mean? King Toth of Egypt, it was the, the creator of the alphabet, creator of letters. Well, come on. That is beautiful. You know? But in, in another thing in, in Egypt, I mean, Egyptians speak French as well. Mm. There's major French you know, influence there. Yeah. Same thing with Tangiers, Algeria, Morocco. It's crazy. Like, there's so much. There's an abundance of, of knowledge that you can learn from, from the Middle East. You know, this is the birthplace of man. Yeah, wow. In a biblical sense, it's the birthplace of you know, man. It's where we all originate from. Yeah. So where to from here? What, what's, um, what purpose have you found in the last couple of years, what, what do you want to be about? I just want to be about setting the standards straight when it comes to thinking that you, you want to live a life with crime and gangs, mm. but knowing that you ain't going to get that way. I just want people to know that where I've been, yeah. it's not a nice place. Um, and there's always that option to get out. And if you need a brother, you know, I'm there. I want to be that ear or that shoulder. Mm. The guy that grabs you out of the dirt, out of the dark, and walks with you on your journey yeah. to better yourself in life. And that's where I'm at. I graduated uh, last year just with entry level cert four, and I've got my own business now. So it's a mentoring business, counselling business. And I just want to I want to help those. That, that I mean, you would have seen so many people going in and out of prison, just the same <laughs> as you. Like yeah, you would yeah. be meeting them year after yeah. year as they're going in and out, yeah. in and out, in and out as well. So just being able to intervene and to cause that to to help people to stop that cycle in their life that's a powerful thing that's a powerful thing it's life changing I never had no one do it for me so that's sort of another reason mm -hmm. I never had anyone put a hand out and say hey mate do you, do you need a hand I can get you away from this just listen to me mm -hmm. I had to find it the hard way and I don't want anyone else to do that makes any sense yeah I don't want anyone else to struggle to find a way out uh, or to find that support they need mm -hmm. yeah, I'll be your brother I'll, I'll be your father, I'll be your father figure, no problem. Let me walk alongside you in your journey and help you get to where you need to get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll just pause for a sec. That's good, eh? I'm crying. Why are you crying? <laughs> that was really good. I liked that. Just wow. had to pause on that one for a sec. Yeah. Just let that. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. <laughs> How are we at, man? That was pretty good. Speaking my language, brother. Speaking my language. That was really good. How are we going for time? Uh, five. Yeah, it's five. Yeah, how long have we just got on this line? Because um, I've just. Um... Is that not like that camera or not? <laughs> <laughs> That was 30. Oh, okay. oh 30. Um, 40. 40 minutes. Yeah. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah. yeah, we're right, right back on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. That's good. All right, I'll just finish off with two more questions. Yeah.
Riz, I think when a lot of people look at um, gangs, prison, um, everything you've been through, to be really honest, just even the way you look, like you're a strong guy, got the tats, all of it, like the chains, I don't see the chain, but I know it's there, um, you know, all of you've got all of it, right? And I think just even that look, for guys, us as men, there's a desire inside of all of us, I want to be the man. And there's a certain portrayal of that, I guess, whether it's movies growing up or film or TV, whatever it is, you know, it's like, okay, I want to, I want to be the man, right? And you are a person who, um, you've been there, you've been through the whole process of trying to prove yourself and being that person too, being the powerful person, being the influential person, being the one that other people look to. And now you've gone through that whole cycle. It's kind of like this, right? It's like you went to the summit, saw there was nothing there, <laughs> and decided to keep on moving on. Yeah, sort of like that. Can you just share just a couple of thoughts about what real being a man is? Real being a man is allowing yourself to feel emotions, allowing yourself to feel vulnerable, mm. getting out of your, your comfort zone and growing. That's a real man. A real man will be there for for the underdog, not try to be the top dog all the time. Mm. You know, I mean, this what what you see in front of me now is something that that I grew, that kept me protected. You know, that kept me in in a dominant way to stay alive. Yeah. But I actually wrote a release letter to myself. Really? Yeah. Uh, just as I left rehab, and um, I burnt that letter at the rehab, and it was basically stating to myself, you know, thank you for for protecting me in my life and growing into this, but I need time to reconnect with the child me. Wow. So I did that. And I think the main thing for all men is to get out of the man box. Mm. It's a hard thing. We grow up as, as young boys with our fathers saying you can't cry or you know, dust it off, you'll be all right. Or, you know, it's a woman's place to do this. It's a man's place to do that. Mm. That's all wrong. It's, it's all wrong. It's filtered down. This intergenerational trauma crap is to stop it. So really get in touch with... Being a man, for me, getting in touch with your, your child you mm. and, and saying to yourself, it's okay to cry, it's okay to feel, it's okay to, to hurt, you don't need to run a mask, it, but um, voice it, speak it out. Yeah, well. As being a man, using your voice. I figure, for myself personally, I feel that I'm more of a stronger person now. Absolutely, you are. I can do that. Yeah, yeah, because you've got in touch with who you actually are on the inside. Yeah, you really, really are. Who God was with me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And on that note, just, just, what has life been for you since experiencing God on a different level? Beautiful. He's blessed me with a wife. Yeah. Um, I prayed to get through my studies. He blessed me with where I'm at now with my certs and, and my studies being graduated. Um, yeah. Blessed me with work. Blessed me with family. Is it more than religion? Yeah. I'm not a religious person. Yeah. I'm not a religious person. but Because people that are hearing you who maybe have no context, yeah, right? Yeah. Don't believe in anything. I, I, I went to church when I was 15 years old, yeah. you know, for a Catholic mass or something yeah, like don't that. Yeah, don't get it wrong. Yeah. I, I'm not a part of a Christianese society. Yeah. You know, I'm not super spiritual. Me personally, I have a great connection with God. Mm. I have a, 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 a very alive relationship 
it's very active. And I've said this in another uh, interview that I did that I'm connecting through God every second of every day. Mm. Thanking, praying, asking for guidance, asking for wisdom, asking for direction at every step of the way. Yeah. I, I don't just, in bad times, like, oh God, help me. Yeah. Or in good times, like, thank you God. It, it's everything in between for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, I don't go to the next man's house and say, have you heard of Jesus? You're in Christ? Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not like, it's not like that. You know what yeah. I mean? For me, it's like, if you step to me and you ask me, what it is that, that's helped me in life to get me where I'm at. Of course I'm going to say, I give glory to God. Yeah. Because that's what it is for me. Yeah. I mean, I have a very, very beautiful relationship with God. And I don't try pounding it on the next bloke. Yeah. I just want them to know that if you want to know my story, he's the main part of it. Oh, yeah. That's incredible. I mean, especially since you've just been through so, mm. so, so, so much. Do you sometimes wake up remembering traumas? Yeah, yeah. You do? Yep. And I let myself sit in it. Mm. It's the only way you get resilient. I don't mask no more. I don't run. And if I need to, I've got my best friend right next to me. I married her. I get to talk it out if there's anything that really gets home. Yeah, well. Yep. I love my wife for that too because um, she's, she's my star and she's my long time. Now that, I mean, that's a really powerful thing because I think a lot of times we tend to suffer on our own and we just sit there and we stew and we think and a lot of the conclusions we come up with by ourselves are not the right conclusions no they're, the... they're automatic thoughts mate it's, yeah, um, yeah. it's something that you go to because you're comfortable with yes you know I mean you, the only way you're going to get resilient is stepping out of your comfort zone and growing yeah and I, I was allowed to do that with going into the rehab I was allowed to you know peel back the proverbial onion mm. and, and find who I was underlying you know what I mean and it, it's given me the opportunity to um to grow that resilience muscle. Yeah. And be able to sit in uncomfortable situations and know that it's going to be okay in five minutes. Yeah. That's so good. Riz, I know your story is going to impact so many people and just even people listening to this are um, uh, going to be so inspired just by what you've come from, where you are right now, where you're going. And uh, before we end this, though, I want to give a little plug because you're going, you're, 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 um, a very talented man, you are, Thanks, and uh, I think one of the funnest parts about our dinner a couple of weeks ago was just you doing a multitude of accents, <laughs> one after the other, was absolutely brilliant, right. and so I know you, you have a desire to also act and be in TV and oh, film, don't you? Right, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's definitely going to be there on the horizon for you at some point, mate. You have a... Look, whatever, whatever the calling, um, I'm taking you with me, man. You're, you're yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Riz. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate.